Welcome to the show, everybody. I know some of you are like, I just need to see Shane Moss live sometime in 2019. It was this huge goal of mine. My big New Year's resolution for 2019 was to see Shane Moss live, and I haven't yet. The year is almost over. What am I going to do? Well, don't fret. There are still opportunities doing stand-up science in Buffalo, Rochester, New York, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, then doing regular old stand-up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Madison, Wisconsin, doing stand-up science again, uh, then then the Head Talks Tour. This is the most exciting thing that I've put together in a long time. That's in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, de- uh, December 5th, Wichita, December 7th, Oklahoma City, December 8th, Dallas, December 12th, 10th, and Austin, December 12th. I have a feeling that those shows are mostly going to sell out. I, I think that Lincoln is... Uh, Lincoln's going to be the tough one. It's about twice as big as most of the venues, and it's the smallest, um, about the smallest city that I'm doing on it, and it's Lincoln, Nebraska, and it's a psychedelic show. So are we going to fill 400-plus seats there? I don't know. But if we do, um, it will... uh, I did 111-city uh, the good trip tour. I'll aim for more than that if we get, if we get these first five sold out, guys. So even if you're not in those areas, do what you can to spread the word. And then last chance of the year to see me. Uh, that's actually not true. I just added some stuff in California that'll hopefully be updated on the site um, by the time you're listening. Um, but uh, I have Glendale, Arizona doing doing a regular old comedy club, comedy shows. I don't do that very often anymore. I think for 2020, my goal is to do four weeks at comedy clubs. It used to be that was my living. I did three weeks a month. And I've just gotten away from doing it. I, I'm focused on stand-up science and head talks and doing indie things. And I, I love it. And it also makes it so that when I do actually do stand-up, uh, regular old stand-up comedy at regular old stand-up comedy clubs, I actually enjoy it again. Um, you know, I, I just burnt myself out over time. I'm sure I'll do it again with everything else that I'm putting together, but trying to take a break from regular stand-up a little bit. So I, I right now I have, I have two weeks of work already for 2020 at, at clubs, two of my favorite clubs in Grand Rapids and Royal Oak, Michigan. And I'm, I'm trying to only book two other ones next year and I'm probably going to be pretty selective about where they are as well so uh just so you know you want to see me doing a regular stand-up at a comedy club Glendale Arizona right after Christmas before New Year's so uh that's it and then and then it's it's a new year can you believe that 2020 is upon us and by the way guys this is if you're listening to this this is I think about basically the week this is the anniversary of the uh, of the start of the here we are podcast 5 years ago we've been doing this for 5 years now guys thank you so much for all of the support this podcast I love it so much I wish this is all that I did 
I wish this was how I made my living uh, doing like live podcasts and and stuff too. So yeah, I, I mean, this is this has just been a dream that I never would have expected that I, I didn't know that I had until I started doing it. I've learned so much and and not just that and I'm not just saying this but the people that listen to this show are just so great it's part of the reason why I'm leaving regular comedy clubs uh, is so that I can just cater to filling audiences full of you guys because you guys are the best audiences that there are out there and so yeah so that's why I'm, I'm doing a lot of the indie stuff to keep out the riffraff not to be too judgmental but you perform in comedy clubs for 15 years straight you'll get a little sick of the cliche drunken bachelor and bachelorette parties and having to babysit them and so it really is a treat to get to perform for you thoughtful interesting folks makes me raise the bar for what I do it's intimidating actually I always wanted to perform for smart audiences and have big conversations and now that I'm in it I'm like oh my goodness well now I'm like I guess I better be smart now crap <laughs> um i i am I just definitely I, I get a lot of the imposter syndrome sometimes definitely don't feel uh like i am smart enough to be even performing for my own audience that's how amazing you guys are so it's been an absolute treat and an honor and a privilege and thank you guys so much for your continued support thank you are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with the head of the Visual Attention Lab at Brigham Women's Hospital and professor of radiology and ophthalmology at Harvard Med. Please welcome Jeremy Wolf, everybody. Thank you, Jeremy, for joining me today. Well, thank you for being here. So give us a little bit of, of your background and how you got into researching vision in the first place. Well, I got into vision because my father sold me to his tennis buddy. Um, <laughs> okay, this is off to an unexpected start already. <laughs> so my father spent his career as a physicist at Bell Labs in New Jersey. Uh-huh. And uh, downstairs from him was one of the uh, great groups of researchers at the time studying vision and cognition. And he used to play tennis with a guy named John Krauskopf. John had hired his own daughter, the previous summer, and I was junior in high school, senior in high school, junior in high school, I guess. And my father thought I should do something that looked like work. Yeah. And, and um, he said to John, you hired your kid last summer. Why don't you hire my kid this summer? And um, he hired me to look at little spots of light that you could barely see and say what color they were. And um, <laughs> and I was so impressed by the fact that you could do that at above chance levels, even though I didn't think I ever saw any colors, that um, that was the start of turning me into a vision scientist. I, in high school, I was going to be 
some sort of liberal arts guy when I went to college. Mm. But by the time I went to college, I had decided I was going to study vision. Wow. Well, I I uh, I I pushed carts at a grocery store when <laughs> when I was that age. So I, I think uh, that's a that's a much better first job than working at a grocery store. Well, I think my father would have been happy at any job that got me out of the uh, got me out <laughs> sure. of the house and and actually getting me out of the house they went off to Russia mm. my parents did on a scientific for a scientific meeting leaving my sisters and I in central Jersey with the house and the air conditioning broke and we didn't know how to get that fixed but the air conditioning worked really nicely at Bell Labs so instead of a 20 hour a week job I started spending about 60 hours a week up there so that helped get me committed to the whole business. Mm. Uh, so th that's uh, it, I didn't realize how long that research had been going on. I've, I've read things of, of people being able to kind of subconsciously um, pick uh, people with various uh, blindnesses and conditions being able to tell you what color they're seeing when when they can't consciously see it and they're picking better than chance. So that that research has been happening for a while. Well, this is less subconscious than near threshold mm. right when you've got something that's barely visible you can end up you know if, if you're forced to say did i see it or did i not see it you you can answer those sort of questions better than you think you can mm. there's nothing very mysterious or subconscious going I on see. there it's just you're working at the limits of your mm. your abilities all right, so so then you got into um, the university. What did you do? So as an undergrad, I was a straight up psych major, mm. um, because well, because experimental psychology is where the study of human vision lives academically, though it's got outposts in all sorts of academic fields. But if you uh, if you ever took an introductory psych class, the the, the first line of that class is psychology is the science of human behavior and human mental life or something like that and you don't have much behavior or mental life without uh, sensation and perception mm. so that's often where the the course starts and so if i was going to become a vision researcher uh, psych was what you were going to major in so i majored in psych and i studied uh, and i had it really good because most people, when they think of psychology, are thinking, as I think you were, of the more social and personality ends of things. Mm -hmm. So most of the undergraduate majors were interested in that. And so the professors whose specialty was personality had long lines of undergraduates outside their door. But the um, professors who were studying perception had basically no undergraduates. So I had about three different advisors and a a lovely office of my own. I was treated very well. Hmm. I, I had a, a good undergraduate time. Is that still the case? I mean, I mean, it seems like uh, it seems like perception is is something that people are getting more and more into, or or the uh, more social psychology stuff. Is that still more popular? I, th I think it's less true now than it was when I was a student. Um, and I would base that on having had high school students in the lab every year now for oh, at least 25 years. And if you go back 
um, these are coming from various programs that uh, that put science uh, put high school kids in the lab. And uh, 25 years ago, people were not asking to be in um, cognition labs mm. of any variety. They were they they were doing biology or they were doing physics. And I would get a student who had said something vaguely visual in her essay, and she would be assigned to me. Mm -hmm. uh, now you do actually get people who um, read Oliver Sacks or right. um, or are interested in deep learning or something of that sort and actually have a, an interest early on in perception. So I think you're right. It's, it's a more popular topic than it used to be. I've had uh, so I've done my my other my live show stand up science where I have two scientists on each time I've had a couple different visual people on and and audiences sure get a kick out of uh, you know the, some optical illusion work or whatever there's this uh, on Netflix there's a there's a series brain games I don't know if you oh yes ever, once once people ever, are ever heard of it once people are exposed to it yeah you know it's intrinsically fascinating right um, it's just that. Um, back when I was getting into this, you didn't learn about it as a something that you might actually do for a career mm -hmm. until much later. Most of my colleagues of, of my age became vision researchers, you know, discovered they were interested in that further on in their education. Mm -hmm. um, I was unusual in starting at about age 17. So for our listeners that are uh, that are new to the show, and it's been a while since we've really talked about vision on the show too, but maybe we could, uh, could you give us just a little bit of a um, visual perception 101 that would maybe lead into um, some of the work that you do? Visual perception 101. All right. Uh, <laughs> I, I know that might be, you have 30 seconds to explain all of vision. Go. No, that's not, that's that's that's. <laughs> fine <laughs> i'd say that the first bit is yeah you've got an eye it's there to take information from the world and and pass it along to your uh to your brain um there's a vast amount that we could say about uh about that starting with the fact that the optics of the eye make an image on the back of your eye that's upside down mm -hmm. and that uh, people spent years worrying about that but that's another topic we'll talk <laughs> we'll talk about that another day so you've got uh, an image that's upside down that's on the back of your eye on the retina um, the retina has a uh, a sheet of photoreceptors maybe something like 10 million of them spread out across the back of the eye um, they're connected to somewhere between a quarter of a million and a million uh, nerve fibers that run up into the brain. And then surprisingly large chunks of your brain are used to figure out what the eye has, uh, has sent to you. Mm. And um, if there was one punchline to the Vision 101 piece, it's that um, what you are seeing is an an act of inference or or hypothesis testing or something like that at any given moment you are not some kind of camera that just effortlessly sees what's out there in the world right perhaps the easiest way to think about that is um that image on the back of your eye it's two-dimensional right the world that you see is three-dimensional uh that 
three-dimensionality is conjured up for you as a as, as a set of um, intelligent guesses. Mm-hmm. So your listeners cannot know this at the moment, but I am looking at you and I am inferring that you are sitting in front of um, the, the door that is behind you, or at least that I believe is behind <laughs> you. But it would be possible that I was looking at you through a cunningly cut hole in the door and that you're actually sitting across <laughs> across the hall outside i do put a lot of work into this podcast <laughs> it, would be ve- it would be very unlikely and and my brain knows that it, that would be very unlikely sure and so there the the, the the 2d to 3d um transformation is just one of yeah. a huge number of guesses or intelligent guesses that you're making. I also and, infer that you are a whole human being, even though at the moment I can only see yeah, parts you can, of you. You can't see my legs. How would you know if yeah. I have them or not? Yeah, they could be that the legs just completely <laughs> disappeared. You know, they could have walked out through that <laughs> hole in the door a little while ago. Um, and and I, I didn't notice. But um, uh, so that's so 101 point part one is you're making a lot of intelligent guesses if you want to get closer to what i work on which is visual attention you need to realize that um the eyes and indeed all the senses are taking in way more information um than you can handle Mm -hmm. at at one time and this is not because you have some sort of inferior brain i have colleagues who sit around and worry about these things in a more formal manner and they tell me that if you did process everything everywhere across the whole visual field all at once you would need a brain larger than the size of the known universe right and this is impractical well Um, and there's just so uh, just uh, such an incredible amount of detail and everything everywhere and not all of it is completely necessary i could i could sit and look really close at this microphone and see every little hair on the on on the on the foam around it and and really look at every detail and at a certain point it seems like the brain's just kind of like oh i know enough about what's going on unless you wanted to look at those hairs in which case you can pay attention to them yeah and what we're interested in is this business of paying attention attention is really um well, it's not a thing. It is a that you have attentional mechanisms all over your brain that are there to allow you to select some information to process in vast and gory detail and to let other stuff just sort of slide by. Hmm. So most of the time, those hairs on that microphone are going to be of no particular interest to you. But sometime you might want to see how hairy your microphone has gotten. <laughs> and yeah. um, and you would do a couple of things. One would be that you would um, move your eyes so that you were looking directly at that microphone. Because one of the ways we deal with the fact that there's too much stuff out there is by having a visual system that only collects the really finely detailed info at the point of fixation straight ahead. Mm. Right. So if you're reading a book, you you never hold that book 15 degrees off to the side of, of straight ahead um, where you're looking. You look at the print you want to read. Now, the reason you do that is you simply cannot resolve 
the text otherwise. Hmm. So one one way of selecting stuff is just to point your um, your eyes at it, which you'll recognize is easier to do with your eyes than, for instance, your ears. We don't have the same kind of, not exactly the same kind of capability with your ears. Mm. Um, but then the other part is once you had pointed your eyes at it, um, you would use these internal attentional mechanisms to say, well, today I'm interested in hairs. I'm, yeah. I'm going to scrutinize this to see if I can Hey, I, I imagine the, the listener's world just got a whole lot hairier as they're probably noticing little hairs around in their situation. Or if I, or if you, or if you say, think about the color purple and, and, uh, you know, if, if you, if you have your eyes closed and imagine how much purple is in your surrounding environment, it's probably 0.001% of, of the color in your environment. But once you're starting to think about the color purple, now all of a sudden I'm seeing a folder that's a little purplish. I'm seeing a purple a book on, on your bookshelf up there and, and that sticks out a bit more. And, and a way of realizing that there are all sorts of different attentional mechanisms that uh, that are working inside you all the time is to realize that what you've just been talking about is visual attention, picking one uh, aspect of the current visual scene over another. But you can also attend to uh, a, a specific sense, um, choose one sense over the other. So until I mention this fact, your readers, if or your listeners, if they're um, if they're sitting while they're listening. Uh, they've not been particularly aware of the pressure of their rear ends on the chair, but now you <laughs> that's are. That's all they can think about, right? And uh, what's and, it and, smell like around there? Yeah, and, and you you could uh, imagine. Well, you may have been victimized by the childhood game of saying, "Think about your tongue." Yeah, and then all of a sudden, there oh, the hunk of meat hanging out in your mouth, and you can hardly talk. Right. And, um, so you can attend. Of course, you can attend to your internal world rather than the external world if you're mm. you can switch your thoughts your your attention to your internal thoughts and uh be at times quite oblivious to what's going on out there in the world let me throw a little more complex kind of um situation at you so so say there's two versions of me um <laughs> that that are walking what one is a um, one is a, a single guy. Another one is a guy in a relationship with um, uh, whose girlfriend has a birthday coming up or something. So I I walk past you know when you walk past something and then you you go oh hold on a second what was that I and you back up and look say I walked by a storefront window of a jewelry store and there's there's a necklace or something in the storefront window I walk by as far as I know I don't consciously. I didn't really see anything. My eyes didn't go that direction. And then as I walk past, I go, oh, hold on a second. Something caught, the, we'd say, the corner of my eye. And then you turn around and you look. And the criteria within, am I going to turn around and look, is single Shane is going to walk right past it, never even going to be aware that he ever saw a necklace. Uh, Shane with, uh, with a girlfriend with a birthday coming up turns around and goes, oh, that might make the perfect gift do you know what i mean yeah and 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 it points to the fact that that you are not aware of everything that's going on in your mind at any given moment and of course that gets a little tricky you need to go find yourself a philosopher to really unpack that kind of a <laughs> right. sense who's this you who is not <laughs> aware of what is going on in your mind uh, right um, but if we put that aside sure. for uh for the moment um 
you're attending to something right now, but a lot of other stuff is getting processed at the same time. Mm -hmm. And indeed, one of the uh, sort of founding phenomena of the study of attention um, going back into the 1950s was the so-called cocktail party um, effect, where you would be um, that because in the 1950s, they had cocktail parties. <laughs> but all you have to, you can take the cocktail part out and just be in any crowded social situation where lots of people are talking. And um, you're attending to one conversation, mm -hmm. which by itself is an interesting ability. How do you manage to somehow um, filter out enough of the distracting noise that you can follow a conversation when there are other conversations going along? But um, the cocktail party phenomenon is the um, the almost automatic orienting of your attention if somebody mentions your name, right? And um, and a lot of uh, a lot of theoretical work has been done over the years. This time in auditory attention to try to figure out those things that you're not paying attention to is everything somehow being processed are you really understanding all the words or is there something special about your own um name that sneaks in and grabs your attention mm -hmm. similar sorts of things are probably happening in your example of of um single guy and not so single guy walking down the street that um there's different kind of goals going on in the background yeah, you are you are in some sense some variety of a committee, mm -hmm. and the got to get a uh, a gift for um, my partner uh, committee may not be currently dominating your consciousness. But all, is, all the is, committees just started perking up and listening right now. Is, 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 is back there doing some <laughs> sort of uh, doing some sort of work, right? And and, uh, and given a chance, we'll grab your attention and say, "Remember that uh, birthday gift you needed to get." Mm -hmm. There might have been something a half a block back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and you can see things where, um, you know, so, say I'm say I'm visiting my brother or something, and and uh, uh, I'm walking around his house. He calls me and is like, "Hey, I can't find my wallet. Have you seen my wallet around?" And then I realize, oh, actually, I did see your wallet on uh by the couch a couple hours ago at the time that i saw it i didn't really note it or anything but then when asked to recall it that information was in my head um so somewhere and somehow being stored uh, stored in a place that without that phone call would have never been accessed would have i would have never had any use for and so how is how is the brain deciding what to hold on to from our from any of these sensory processes and and then uh, over time what to let go of what is important it's um and and the flip side of this is it's perfectly possible for you not to notice or seemingly not to see uh, the things that are right in front of your eyes. Yeah, like the gorilla and the like, basketball. Like the gorilla. <laughs> um, well, uh, the, the, the gorilla is, is, the, is the famous version uh, for, for our current era, famous enough that when we wanted to see, uh, to, we, we've been studying 
why radiologists sometimes miss what's right in front of their eyes. Mm. And when we wanted to come up with a, a vivid demonstration of this, we went and stuck a gorilla in the lung. Well, not in an actual lung, because mm -hmm. that wouldn't fit. Uh, <laughs> but we put an image of a gorilla into, uh, uh, into a lung CT scan. They were ready for the gorilla trick. They no, already knew they, the... they, oh, it, they, oh, it worked? they missed it. They missed it? Over 80% of our radiologists failed missed to report the gorilla. A gorilla. <laughs> and, and in fact, even though, well, many of your, we'll, let's, let, let's back up and, and not assume that everybody who hears this knows <laughs> sure. what this gorilla thing is. Yeah. So the, the, the classic gorilla experiment is um, you're watching a, a, a sort of a ball game mm -hmm. where the, a team in white shirts and a team in black shirts are passing a ball around and you're told count the number of times the white team cut touches the ball mm -hmm. <clears throat> and while you are busily doing that a woman i happen to know she was a woman in a gorilla suit walks into the middle of the uh ball game um does the sort of gorilla pound on her chest kind of thing and wanders out mm -hmm. and um afterwards you ask people uh, how many times did the white team touch the ball? And they say, oh, 12. And you say, thank you. Did you see anything else? Uh, you know, I saw an elevator because this thing is filmed in front of an elevator. Mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe they say that. Uh, did you happen to see a gorilla? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> right. And then you replay the video for them. And, and uh, so 50% of the pe people in this is Dan Simons and, um, and Shabris's original study and and 50 percent of their subjects failed to see the gorilla mm -hmm. or failed to report the gorilla the question of what you actually saw is is a little trickier but but asked about it after the fact they could not tell you that they saw the gorilla mm -hmm. um, but of course once it's pointed out it's blazingly visible <laughs> yeah. and and in our experiments actually it was i think 20 of 24 radiologists failed to report out um, our gorilla, not because they were um, bad radiologists or, um, and certainly not because the image was defective in any way. It was a highly visible gorilla. Um, but because if you are uh, looking as they were for little round white signs of lung cancer, mm -hmm. um, you're not tuned up for big right. black shaggy gorillas <laughs> and i mean this it this sounds like a kind of a silly experiment um but it's based on a on a a, a real issue out in the world right. which is that if you go to get uh, uh if, if, if you're being screened let's say for lung cancer mm -hmm. those are the sort of images we were using if you're being screened for lung cancer the radiologist's job is to tell you or te you know uh, tell whether or not there are signs of lung cancer but also to report any so-called incidental findings hmm. and an incidental finding is anything else that could be clinically significant in this image and um you would think that um having a gorilla in your lung would be clinically significant yeah you'd want to check into it though Though, to be fair, I, I discovered after we published this paper that radiology social media exists. 
And this, this particular paper got a fair amount of notice in mm. radiologist social media. And one of the comments showed up a few times was the comment that um, this is stupid because um, the things that get missed, the incidental findings get missed, that get missed are things that really could happen in the lung. Gorillas don't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what the, the, the sorts of things that are really important clinically are you're looking for uh, lung cancer. Um, the patient doesn't have lung cancer, but she does have pneumonia. And you should really say something about that. And the radiologists know that they should say something about pneumonia. It's, it's sort of floating around li- like that necklace you were talking mm-hmm. about. It's not at the front of their mind, but somewhere in their mind is the idea, I better keep an eye out for pneumonia and cracked ribs and have a look at whether the heart looks okay and, and, and so on. So back in the lab, we've been actually trying to develop experimental methods where people, now not radiologists, just regular folks, miss things that they really, really are looking for. And we, we, we can make you, mi- we, don't, we don't have to just bamboozle you with the occasional gorilla. You, sure. you'll, you'll miss all sorts of stuff. Uh, yeah, and if, guys, even listeners, if you go on YouTube, and I, I don't know exactly what you'd Google, the gorilla experiment, I'm sure it would pop right up, but there's, there's several versions of it, and they've, and they've since gone and expanded on, in some videos where you already know that you're going to see the gorilla, now they've changed all these other things in, in your environment, and there's endless ways in which we can be tricked, it seems. Yeah, the, the, the cool thing about uh, this phenomenon, which is known as inattentional blindness, is that knowing about it doesn't immunize you uh, so mm-hmm. as you were saying you know if if you now go and look up the gorilla experiment and you find the original ball game video um you'll see that gorilla and you'll be very proud of yourself <laughs> but if you type in inattentional blindness uh-huh. many of my buddies have done lovely demos yeah. uh, of this and i have various demos of of my own that I use when teaching about this, and it doesn't matter how much you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to get you anyway. Though, though the the meta uh, way to beat these demos, actually, it's not even quite true anymore because people have the, the, the technology has moved on. It used to be that the way to figure out um, what was wrong with this image that you knew is trying to fool you is to think what a not terribly talented researcher could do with photoshop Mm. so a lot of my demos have to do with erasing things out of photo you know in in photoshop but now even that won't help you (laughs) it's it's a lot of fun go on to google yeah go find yourself a few demos and uh you'll be amazed by what you can miss yeah, I, I, blind spots are uh, are are fascinating to me. I mean, we've all we've all had the experience of having the uh, driving and going to switch lanes and uh, having what we thought was a clear lane next to us, and then getting honked at, and all of a sudden, in a split second, our our visual perception changes, and now there's a car in it um, that we didn't notice before, and and that's I mean, there's uh, the blind spot thing is like uh, there's there's because of the way the cones are oriented in your eye. Well, the, 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 the blind spot that causes you to miss 
what's um, in the lane next to you is not the blind. There, there is a physiological blind spot, mm. which is also lots of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, to uh, uh, but is not why you missed that car. So uh, it turns out that your um, retina is, uh, for mysterious reasons, put on backwards. Uh, so we were talking earlier about the idea that uh, you've got a set of photoreceptors and that they then feed a bunch of um, uh, nerve fibers that go up to the brain. You would think that the sensible thing, the sensible order would be light comes in the eye, it hits uh, the photoreceptors, and behind the photoreceptors are the other cells whose um nerve fibers whose axons go up to the brain but in fact it's the other way around Mm. the photoreceptors are at the very back of the eye um, and those cells um, and those nerve fibers actually sit between the light and the photoreceptors Mm. Um, and that leaves you with a problem you got to get the nerves uh, the, the nerve fibers out of the eye up to the brain they all gather together in one spot uh, to form the optic nerve and that the spot where that optic nerve leaves the um, leaves the eye there are no photoreceptors and so at that specific location you're blind hmm. um, it, it, it's a little tricky to describe um, how to find your own blind spot over uh, in a purely auditory medium hmm. but this is another one where if you Google it and say, where is my blind spot? You can, uh, you can find the, the technique for, for proving that you've got this blind spot. But how do I know that it's not why you didn't, why you missed that car in the other lane? Um, the simplest answer is the blind spot in the left eye is in a different spot than the blind spot in the right eye. Hmm. So if you've got both eyes open, um, there's there's basically no blind spot in the in the visual field that you're looking at plus it's probably in the wrong place and it's too small and the reason you missed that is um well partly it's the design of your car um it's really hard to build a car with really good uh uh, line of sight 360 degrees around your head but partly it's that um, when you last paid attention over there, the the relevant car probably wasn't there yet. Mm, so you set you 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 checked your mirror, nothing there. You made a few plans to change lanes. By the time you changed lanes, somebody else decided that was a cool space, and um, and now you discover that there um, there's somebody where you didn't think there was anybody. Hmm. Um, so, so this might be a bit um, kind of outside of your focus. Um, so uh, forgive me, but it's related and uh, some, something that I've been very curious about. And I don't, I don't have anyone uh, better to ask. So um, you mentioned Oliver Sacks and and uh, the late Oliver Sacks, and I loved his book, The Mind's Eye. Uh, when, when. I get the sense that I'm a, a little bit more of a visual daydreamer than the average person from describing my experience of daydreaming to people. I have fairly vivid um, daydreams, but when you but when you kind of imagine something in your mind's eye, like say, 
picturing an apple or something like that. Is that using the same parts of the brain that are interpreting the actual physical visual information? Seemingly, yes. That mm. that um, there, there's a limited amount of work on this, or at least a limited amount that I'm aware of. Um, and but it suggests that if you imagine an object, the same chunks of brain that would have lit up if you saw the real object will uh, light up again. Not exactly the same, right? So it, there's no sense that if you imagine that apple that um, there's activity related to imagining the apple all the way down to your retina or anything like that. But at the, uh, at, at the uh, sort of higher end of the system, where uh, there are processes doing object recognition, um, imagination probably does conjure up much the same set of, uh, of, of, of brain processes as the real thing. Hmm. And, and I don't think we really quite understand why some people report much more vivid imagery than uh, others, but uh, to the extent that that's a real thing, it probably reflects the ability of some people to activate these, you know, the, the Apple recognizer in a top-down way more completely than, than the rest of us. I can, I can sort of imagine an Apple, but I don't really see it floating in front of me. Mm. Other people report a much more vivid, um, you know, sensory kind of experience and, um, that seems to be related to the same piece of brain that would have told you about a real apple. Hmm. To go right. further down the rabbit hole, and, <laughs> and uh, you're, welcome, you're welcome to just pass and say, I don't know on any of this, because this might be a, a little further out there, but related, when you say, say back to driving, you're, you're driving, you have the, uh, the blind spot and then, oh, geez, there was a car. And I, I often I'll have, uh, I imagine most people will have, will have like a flash of an imagined scenario you imagine getting in that car accident or you took mm. a fast turn you you imagine your car like having flown off the cliff or so, this kind of very graphic um quick imagery and and um related say um say you're you're in line and and you um uh, for for something or other and you're frustrated and you have this uh, you're at the grocery store or something and and you have this image of like uh, uh like freaking out or punching the person in front of you or something. It's something that you would actually never do, but it's almost as if it's almost as if some part of your brain is recruiting the visual system to quick flash like a a a metaphor to get a quick visual point across. Like if we were playing charades and I needed to act out anger mm. um to you, I would do this very dramatic, cartoonish, expressive version of anger, even though anger is a much more nuanced um, thing and, and and it seems like our our visual system in the in our mind's eye kind of does these very dramatic um, visions of of more kind of nuanced detail. Like, hey, maybe you should be a little more careful when you're driving. And to get that point across, it uses this very dramatic scene of flying over a cliff or something. Well, I this might be you. <laughs> well, at least yeah? I, I I don't particularly have the experience of uh, of of thinking I'm gonna 
fly off the edge of the uh, huh. the road on a, a regular basis. But I think what you're describing um, is something that we all have and goes back to this idea that um, th- that vision is a massive act of hypothesis testing. Mm-hmm. You know, why do I think you're in front of the uh, um, the door and all that sort of thing? Um, the rest of your uh, mental life has a lot of that going on too. How do you know what to do next? How do you know what to say um, to that partner when you forgot to buy the necklace? How do you know? Um, a, a, how how do you know what uh, well what to do next? And a big piece of that is you're continuously. Uh, running little simulations in mm-hmm. your head. If I did this, that would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and with more or less success, right? The, 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 um, the folks who have um, very poor simulators of what their friends and partners will say or do when they do something um, find themselves in trouble. Mm-hmm. On uh, with some regularity, but when you're driving down the street, you're continuously, um, subconsciously, unconsciously, implicitly—pick your word—you're continuously trying out all the alternatives. If I switch lanes now, um, uh, I will a get there a little bit faster. Um, b run into that other car that seems to be pulling up beside me um and 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 apparently in your case see fly off the cliff and (laughs) die a horrible death in flames um sounds like a more dramatic way of uh getting around the world maybe i'm just a dramatic it could be a daydreamer i don't know could could be that you have a more vivid uh (laughs) set of experiences it seems to be the case but it's probably it's probably a p of of a piece with this um general principle that you've got to be continuously trying out in right. your mind what's going to happen what's going to happen next yeah um, and uh, and if you can figure that out reasonably successfully you'll get down the road yeah i i mean i uh, n- not just in terms of today i'm going rock climbing after this i can visualize myself looking up the nearest location and then driving there and checking in at the gym and all that and then the things that i'll the computer work that i'll do uh after i get back but then you have uh, longer visions of of um say i'm uh, constructing a new joke or something like that for for my stand-up i often when doing that have have a simulation of me being on stage, yeah. delivering it in different ways, and and anticipating different reactions, different um, uh, different ways in, in which, or with my show, different questions people might ask, and or different feedback that I might get, and then I'm I'm tweaking it and running, rerunning that simulation, and uh, so yeah, it seems like we have to be doing that all the time. And it's interestingly disconcerting when. Um when the prediction is violated <laughs> oh, so yeah. so the, the the you know you, you were talking before about that the the car in your blind spot but it's it's um i don't do stand up but but occasionally teaching undergraduates is much the same sort of thing yeah. when um when everybody laughs and you don't think you told a joke <laughs> you know that's that's uh <laughs> That's, that, a that, that's a, in, in a yeah. sense of prediction failure, yeah. And then you can see your, you can sort of feel yourself 
walking it backwards. Yeah. And and um, you you can actually sort of listen to that tape in your head. Right. What did I just say? <laughs> and then you can figure out. Oh yes, now I see the joke. Yeah. And huh. Um, and uh, is is I, that is that kind of um, that simulation process? Is that is it, that that must be a, a part of something bigger and and the visual system is just one aspect of that or, or yeah that, they... the visual system I, I i hang out in the visual system right but that sort of um the, the simulation is is held to be central to uh cognition mm-hmm. more generally and if you uh if you really wanted to learn something less superficial about that um i can tell you where to find those guys all right they, Sounds good. Well, uh, thanks for indulging me um, down down that rabbit hole. Uh, what's what's some of uh, your current research that you're doing? Uh, what are we up to at the moment? Well, as as I was saying before, we study um, how radiologists find what they're looking for and sometimes miss what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. My my lab sort of moves back and forth between uh, studying fundamental properties of visual perception that uh, um, and visual attention that that everybody has and then studying what experts do with the same set of uh, same set of tools so we've been interested for example in visual foraging so foraging foraging is when you're looking for multiple examples of the of uh, of the same kind of target so think about berry picking mm-hmm. if you're out there um, in the berry patch, picking berries, do you pick every berry that's on the bush before you move to the next bush? Hmm. So your your intuition should probably be no, no. I, I you know I pick a bunch of berries and then at some point I decide that it's time to move. Yeah, you and, get the low hanging fruit and then you. Yep, that that's move that's, on. that's a that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's real theory that predicts with. Uh, considerable precision when it's time to move to the next berry bush Hmm. Um, and uh, we've done these experiments in the lab not with berries but just with boring little spots on a computer screen and people behave this is actually behavior that 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 animals have and uh, it's it's not a particularly human behavior animals have to forage too and we all behave much the same way so now uh, so the rule is um, you leave um, the current patch or the current bush when the the rate with which you're getting goodies drops below the sort of average rate for the task. Mm-hmm. Right. This this is a little bit like the grass is greener um, uh, cliche, but basically you're picking, 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 and now you sort of think, well, if I was to wander over to that bush, um, it would be in my best interest because I'd be getting more berries faster. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, great. Got nice data that humans uh, do that, just as bees and cows do that. Um, now let's think about um, radiologists. If a radiologist is looking for signs of uh, whether cancer has spread, mm. then um, you don't really want that radiologist um, moving on when uh, when she thinks oh i'd probably find more in this next patient i think i'll leave this patient mm-hmm. so the rules for um that you want your expert to follow 
are different than the rules that perhaps evolution has stamped into us for foraging for um for foraging for food and so one of the things that we're interested in is studying these sorts of behaviors in in an expert like a radiologist and um uh, and seeing whether some errors are perhaps caused by um berry picking rules in effect being uh, applied in the wrong in, in at the wrong time hmm. Now it's tricky to study radiologists because radiologists are very busy, um, very busy people. Yeah, and, they're arguing with people on social media and stuff. They got a lot to do. <laughs> no, they they really do have a lot to do. Part of the, the one of the great um, uh, changes over the last oh I don't know twenty thirty years has been the evolution of um, increasingly uh, d- clever technologies like. Um, MRR, MR mm-hmm. scanners and CT scanners. And so the image that once upon a time, you know, the, if, if you think of that sort of classic x-ray of, of a chest, you know, with all the ribs and stuff like that, that nice two-dimensional image has been replaced by, you know, many hundreds of slices through the same hunk of, uh, of your body. And, um, you know, a generation ago, Mm-hmm. people couldn't look inside the the skull well you could look inside the skull but you, you you didn't get a lot now you've got huge piles of imagery and uh the the poor radiologist still has the same two eyes and one brain to look at it so the the explosion of images has been on the one hand great now you can see things you could never see before but it really does put very heavy time pressure Hmm. on on them but uh what we'll be doing next week next week no it's about two or three weeks out still but the main radiology meeting every year is in chicago and um with the help of the national cancer institute we actually build a lab on the exhibit floor at that meeting and uh, together with about 20 other labs from around the world we test radiologists while they're off at this scientific meeting mm. because while it's very hard to break into a radiologist's workday, um, when there are thousands of them in Chicago, you can get a fair number of them to give you 20 minutes, half hour of, uh, of data. So mm. that's what we'll be up to next. Very cool. I, I did a uh, episode. Um, I don't know about, a little over a year ago, where I was in, what was it, Iowa State? They had a virtual reality, a really big virtual reality facility there. Mm. And one of their projects was taking MRIs and creating, uh, putting it in a virtual reality room. So the, um, uh, so the, uh, neurosurgeon looking for like where exactly the brain aneurysm was before operating could go into this yeah. virtual reality space and and get a much better sense of where it was than in this old version of this gray two-dimensional um, picture of the brain. Yeah, in the old days, if you needed um, brain surgery, um, the, the, the neurosurgeon was going in and basically exploring and uh, having somebody exploring in your brain with a knife is it's not ideal. Not not ideal. <laughs> one one of the really amazing technologies um, in that regard now 
is uh, 3D printing. Mm. So you get these uh, lovely 3D images of, um, you know, pick your body part. Um, and now the that image can be turned into a three-dimensional model and handed to the surgeon. And the surgeon can have a much better idea of what to expect when they actually do go inside you than they ever could have had before and you know they could you could sort of practice and imagine your your process without having to do it in real time with a real patient mm. um it's uh, hmm. uh well in terms of technology is uh, is artificial in intelligence to doing or, or I, I guess just computers generally are, are they um getting better at doing uh radiology work or are there ways of um of of training um ai to pick up on some of these uh things that that other that people aren't um you, you know it seems like computers don't care as much about moving on to the next berry bush yeah. if you program them to do so. Yes, so that that's absolutely true that you can get away from some of these problems that uh, that plague humans um, by just telling the computer what to do. The computer does not get bored. The computer does not doesn't need breaks. Doesn't need breaks, <clears throat> and um, certainly not going through a divorce at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, radiologists have been wondering. Um, uh, you know, quite loudly, whether or not they're going to be replaced by mm -hmm. uh, by a, a computer, um, not anytime soon. Now, mm -hmm. if the computer could do the job perfectly, um, fine, game over. But um, but nobody's nobody's anywhere near that at this point. Um, a good computer, the places where the computers are most successful, at least in in tasks that are of interest to me. The places where they're most successful are in uh, tasks where you're doing the same thing over and over mm -hmm. again. So let's look for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Computer is about as good as an expert radiologist at that. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the interesting mysteries at this point is why if you have a really good computer and a really good human, when you put them together, why isn't the combination markedly better? Hmm. And part of the answer, um, part of the answer comes back to the human, because um, because the human still needs to be the decider. We are unwilling as a society to hand over medical decision making um, to uh, to the computer mostly. Mm -hmm. um, but you can imagine the problem if you think about uh, a, a stack of a thousand um, cases of women who are being screened for breast cancer. Um, in North America, in a thousand women, there are probably three or four with signs of cancer. So it's a rare event, but clearly an important one. Mm -hmm. The um, A really good computer, a really good deep learning algorithm will probably find all of those cancers. Hmm. But at the same time, um, well, and, and a, a good, expert would have also found um, probably all of them, but and, and well, maybe maybe they missed one. And maybe the computer found it. Um, and that should be useful. Mm -hmm. But both the human and the computer um, also find things that aren't cancer. 
And that's about 10% of the time, let's say. Mm -hmm. So now you have to imagine there are three cancers in this stack of a thousand, let's say, or four, and the computer found all of them. And the computer also found something, um, right. 10%, 10% of a thousand, that's a hundred. So yeah, wow. the computer muttered in your ear about a hundred times. Hmm. Um, of those three times um, were actually real. Hmm. So if I, if, 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 well, you're visiting my town. If I suggest to you a hundred places where you might want to eat and only three of them are any good, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not going to ask me for advice again. Hmm. And um, so one of the really interesting problems, if you're in my business of uh, trying to understand human behavior, one of the really interesting problems is how to get a clever computer and a clever human to work together in a way that makes the two of them more clever. Can, in your example, could you theoretically have enough faith in the computer to be like, well, at least that 900 we can discard as, as being okay and not having cancer, and now maybe we need a human to look through these 100? Yeah, that's... Um what's known in the trade as image triage. Okay. Um, and you might not be willing to go with getting rid of 90% of the images, uh -huh. but you might well be able to get rid of, say, a third to a half of them that way. Hmm. And, um, and that would be a huge savings of time. Hmm. And um, time, time is a very vital commodity in this business. So that would be, um, that would be real progress. In mo mostly the um, the clinical trials have not been done yet that would prove that this is um, a, a, something that we can do in in regular practice. It's a really good idea, mm. and uh, and 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 actually we we study it, um, but it's not quite ready for prime time yet. At least not in uh, it, it. It it is ready for prime time in some bits of medicine. So um, in screening for cervical cancer, that's pap smears, mm -hmm. my understanding is that what the machine does these days is it takes the whole big image, thousands and thousands of cells, it cuts it into a thousand little images and it shows you the 30 most suspicious ones. I see. And if there's nothing in there, it says there's nothing in this image. Hmm. But... Um, at least that's the way. That's that's what I've heard. Either way, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's an advancement, no doubt. Well, um, all right. So I have my guest each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Did he have one in mind? Well, the one that springs to mind would be Rabbis for Human Rights. If uh, if you don't swing towards rabbis, I imagine there would be the equivalent uh, priests or ministers or uh, whatever persuasion suits you but yeah. uh, rabbis for human rights works for me it's a good cause worth thinking about well thank you so much for for your time and and for everything that you do i appreciate it it was a pleasure having you on the show jeremy well thanks for having me all right see you guys next week next week on the here we are podcast talking with the fantastic, charming Amy Schmidt, professor of biology at Duke University. We had a lot of fun. We were talking all about archaea, 
Are you familiar? I wasn't. And since I've heard about it, it's like they're all the rage. These Archaea are blowing up. People are real excited about them. It's uh, these interesting, very, very old, ancient organisms that can live in extreme environments and have just been around for a very long time. Entire, completely different, had to rework the the lines of our evolutionary tree because of of the work that's been done with these things fascinating conversation make sure and check that out guys if you want to support me you can always support me on patreon.com slash shane moss go to libro.fm and you can get three months of audiobooks for the price of one while supporting this show with the offer code here we are if you go to the here we are podcast.com website you can learn more and um also looks like we are since i'm starting up the head talks tour again and we'll have the venue uh and the space to be promoting uh such a thing in an easier way than it's been uh, with my uh, doing stand-up science and everything and, and trying to keep my psychedelic stuff and stand-up science stuff a little bit separate. Head Talks is creating the opportunity for me to promote more of my psychedelic advocacy. And we did end up filling um, Jamaica for 2020, for January 2020. And in fact, there, there, it's possible there's one spot left by the time you're listening to this. But uh, we decided, because because since I've been kind of telling people that it might be the last one, lots of people have been reaching out and, um, and saying that they're absolutely going to come in 2021 if I'll just do one more. And so, uh, I mean, I love it, and I would, I would love if that's, if that's the case, and I can easily um, feel it again. Uh, it's, it's just been a difficult... Um, thing to fill for whatever reason went much harder than i ever uh, thought it would be but it's uh i mean it is the best experience of of my year always and so so we're gonna do another one looking into january or february 2021 and uh so yeah so adding that so so thank you guys for for signing up for this year gonna keep that going and i i was originally hoping it was going to be something that i was going to do multiple times a year but that just doesn't seem to be working out at the moment um but who knows the the world is changing pretty quickly um in in that regard so so it may be the case but uh anyway those are those are some things you can do but i guess the main thing is just spreading the word for head talks it'd be terrific if you guys can do that and uh yeah i hope to Hope to see you out at some live shows soon. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.
Scarpins Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.